evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be here on ADH-TV for your viewing pleasure every week, twice a week. We have an excellent show lined up for you tonight, beginning with the wonderful Indigenous academic Anthony Dillon, who will be discussing the embarrassing state of the Indigenous voice to Parliament, and the delightful Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs, who will be warning us all about the dangers of woke banking and the insidious transition to a cashless society. But first, as we draw ever closer to the upcoming referendum over an Indigenous voice to Parliament, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese must be increasingly frantic. Of course, he put on a brave, jovial face over the weekend at the Gama Festival in northeast Arnhem Land, even cracking the odd joke. Namare bookmark. That didn't respond good. I got nothing. <laughs> we'll, tr we'll try it again. Namari bookmark. And he certainly spoke with genuine emotion and carefully curated gravitas when rallying the audience as to the importance of a successful referendum. Prime ministers and governments have come and gone. But Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been so clear. The form of constitutional recognition they are asking for is a voice. Not our sympathy, not a symbol, but a vehicle for progress, a practical tool to make their children's lives better. Not just something that will feel good, something that will do good that will make a positive difference. We can get this done together and we can get this done now this year. Because if not us, who? And if not now, when? However, behind the buoyant but measured facade must lie a man who is more than a little, well, jumpy. Imagine, if you will, how it would feel to have staked your entire prime ministership on something that, at least for now, looks like it's going to collapse spectacularly. I am talking, of course, about the recent polling that reveals the yes vote, while not necessarily in the toilet, is certainly not at referendum-winning double-majority levels. Over the last week, Labor will have heard three tolls of the proverbial doom bell in terms of polling. First by Redbridge over the weekend, which found the yes vote is behind the no vote in every state and territory, including the Socialist Republic of Victoria. Nationally, Redbridge had the yes vote at 44% and the no vote at 56%. However, the worst thing about this poll for Anthony Albanese is the more detailed people heard about The Voice, the more likely they were to vote no. In fact, after hearing both cases, one in four people polled switched their vote to no, increasing the no camp's lead to 59%. Ouch. Similar results followed from news poll, 
and even the essential poll at left-wing media outlet The Guardian. News poll found support for The Voice had fallen below 50% in every state and is ahead of the no vote only in South Australia and New South Wales. The essential poll, published in The Guardian on Tuesday, was even worse, putting the yes camp behind the no camp in every state except Victoria, which only led the case for yes by 47% to 46%. One measly percentage point. Now, we all know from the 2016 election of US President Donald Trump that polls can be misleading. However, this is more than a little food for thought for Anthony Albanese, particularly when you consider that support for the voice to parliament has been trending steadily downwards since late last year, according to The Guardian's polling results tracker. Now, this is quite remarkable, given the public support for The Voice from not only the federal government, but many major corporations, sporting bodies, universities and churches, all of which have a significant cultural influence on public opinion. And yet still, this stubborn no vote. Now, of course, we all know that there are plenty of explanations as to why the general public has generally resisted pro-voice propaganda thus far. For starters, Australians rightly resent the fact that the federal Labor government expected them to vote for a major change to the Constitution without providing any detail, while calling anyone who asked for detail racist. That was mistake number one. Which leads to mistake number two, linking a no vote with racism. Ordinary people are likely sick to death of the way the word racism is flung around nowadays by the left to silence debate. Now Australians might tolerate it from trolls on the internet, but the minute you insult their intelligence by emotionally blackmailing them on pain of being smeared as a bigot for having the wrong opinion at the ballot box, well, that's quite another matter. Mistake number three, the rampant obfuscation surrounding so many aspects of the voice, particularly about whether it will lead to a treaty, which would involve, among other things, reparations taken as a percentage of Australia's GDP. It's no wonder then that whenever Minister for Indigenous Australians Linda Burney is asked questions relating to treaty, this happens. My question is to the Minister for Indigenous Australians. Last month, the Minister said, and I quote, the Makarata Commission would have two jobs. First, the national process of truth-telling and national agreement-making, which is really code for treaty without saying it. End quote. Would the Minister explain this statement to the House? Uh, the word Makarata is a Order. word from the language of the Yolngu people from Arnhem Land. It means coming together after a struggle, facing the facts of wrongs, living together in peace. And that word was gifted to the Uluru Statement from the late Yunipingu, the great Gumich leader from North East Island. This weekend at Gama, we will gather again 
and we will remember his legacy and all that he did for his people over so many years. And more than anything, he wanted to see constitutional recognition through a voice made a reality. The very definition of a word salad. And no wonder. How do you explain to Australians, particularly those who have only arrived here in the recent past, that a treaty will involve them paying with their tax dollars for the sins of people who lived about 250 years ago? If I were Linda Burney, I also would not want to answer questions about treaty, particularly when you consider the countless billions of tax dollars that have been directed at Indigenous communities, government after government, seemingly to no avail. Reparations have been paid. Newsflash, they haven't helped. And that's not the only obfuscation Australians are rapidly wising up to. It was revealed this week via a Freedom of Information request that when it comes to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the document that calls for the establishment of a voice to Parliament, there's more than meets the eye. Rather than the simple one-pager touted by Anthony Albanese and the Yes Camp, the full document consists of 26 pages, not one, which reveal a radical agenda. As Peter Credlin so succinctly put it in The Australian, far from government being to blame for inculating a sense of victimhood in Aboriginal people, the entire Uluru process, as the official documents show, is riddled with a desire to avenge the theft of Indigenous land and the violence wreaked against Indigenous peoples directly challenging the Prime Minister's oft-made claim that the voice is just a matter of being polite and courteous to Indigenous people. The full statement declares minimal reform or symbolic reform is not enough. It references the right of self-determination, including the recognition of Indigenous peoples as the original owners of this land and of the particular rights that are associated with that status, and that any voice to Parliament should support the recognition, observance and enforcement of treaties. A far cry from the it's just good manners line Anthony Albanese has used to guilt the Australian public into supporting the voice. Now, needless to say, when this information came to light, Albanese was not happy and dismissed the notion that the Uluru Statement from the Heart could be any more than one page long as a conspiracy theory. From a leader of the opposition who thought that saying sorry would be the end of the world, yeah. now he thinks listening to people will be the end of democracy. That's what he thinks, the, Mr Speaker. The, the conspiracy theories are the, colliding the, the with one another. The, the Prime Minister will pause. The member He's struggling to get the Prime his Minister will pause. Straight. The member for Peach. And yet, there, in plain sight, are those extra pages which for some reason have never been mentioned by Anthony Albanese. It's particularly awkward when you consider Professor Megan Davis, who is one of the chief architects of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, said in 2018 that the statement is more than just a one-pager. So the Uluru Statement, many people don't know, is 18 pages long. 
it's not just the one-page invitation to the Australian people. It also includes what we call our story, which is an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history of Australia. Um, and it's unfortunately one of the parts of the Uluru Statement that is not often read and overlooked. Um, so these 18 pages include our story, so our history of our people, and also a few pages, about four, on the reform. Why do we want a voice? Um, what will a voice do? So I urge everybody, if um, they do have the opportunity to look at the Referendum Council report and, and read that whole document, which we call the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Well, it's at least 18 pages long. Megan Davis has tried to walk her statement back this week, but her words speak for themselves. As to the unabridged Uluru Statement from the Heart, what does it say? Well, here's a brief sample. Makarata is another word for treaty or agreement making. It is the culmination of our agenda. It captures our aspirations for a fair and honest relationship with government and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. Through negotiated settlement, First Nations can build their cultural strength, reclaim control and make practical changes over the things that matter in their daily life. By making agreements at the highest level, the negotiation process with the Australian government allows First Nations to express our sovereignty, the sovereignty that we know comes from the law. Now, the law the statement refers to doesn't mean Australian common law. It means, to again quote the document, the ancient jurisdictions of First Nations law. From this, we can only conclude that enshrining an Indigenous voice to Parliament in our Constitution is not just good manners. It's a means of ushering in not only Indigenous sovereignty, but Indigenous separatism. A separate law or legal system that affects and governs only Indigenous people. Did you ever hear anything more regressive than that? more archaic, more, dare I say it, divisive. Now, the referendum will not be held until at least October. There is time for Anthony Albanese to turn the tide on public opinion. But for how much longer can the Prime Minister and Linda Burney obfuscate their way out of discussing the very radical intentions of the authors of the Uluru Statement of the Heart? My prediction is not long. Joining me to discuss all that and more is Indigenous Affairs commentator and academic, the lovely Anthony Dillon. Anthony, it is great to have you here. How are you doing today? Great, Daisy, and great to see you again. Well, great to see you too, and I cannot wait to chat. Now. We have to talk about the 26-page quasi-bombshell that dropped this <laughs> week, so to speak. Now, do you think that this is a legitimate point for the no campaigners to make? Is it something that they should focus on, or do you think perhaps there are better arguments? There are better arguments, and it should be shifted down the priority list. So, I'm, you know, I'm not making a judgment either way. You know, if it's rock solid, you know, in, in terms of the detail, but I think there are some more salient, more obvious things to talk about. Yeah. 
Mm, what kind of things? Okay, well, first of all, you know, the, the premise for The Voice is that Aboriginal people don't have a voice. So, and that's, you know, that's something it's hard to disagree on. You know, with this 26-page thing, we see some uh, media people, uh, ones, both, both sides whom I like, they're going back and forth, yes it is, no it isn't, yes it is, no. But something like Aboriginal people already have a voice, so don't claim that they don't have a voice, that's a pretty solid argument and it's hard to, you know, counter. So focusing on those things, um, the probably the bigger one is we haven't seen the detail of how this voice will magically fix the problems facing Aboriginal people. You, you, you kind of get it, to use your expression for quasi, you get this quasi <laughs> solution of, oh, well, it means Aboriginal people will then be able to talk about problems that impact on them. Well, they've been doing that for decades. And we've, <laughs> you know, to say that they're not represented, it's just an absolute lie. So that's something we can be absolutely certain on. Aboriginal people are represented. They do have voices. Uh, we've seen no plan on how the problems are going to be fixed. And this is despite, dare I say it, for people like Albanese and Linda Burney, two people I respect, okay? Mm. I don't, uh, I disagree with them, but I don't ever ever speak ill of them. And, you know, they've achieved a lot to get to their positions and they deserve respect. But when they've been given golden opportunities to explain this is how it will help Aboriginal people, mm. They haven't done it. Instead, we hear the disadvantage. That's fine. It's okay to be reminded about that. But you've then got to have a, a link between the disadvantage and the solution. And I haven't seen that link yet. Well, yes, exactly. And it's it's interesting you mention the lack of detail. I've always maintained that if, if, if in life you think something is a good idea, you can't wait to talk about it. You can't wait to give people lots of details to push your case. Here we're in a situation where, as I mentioned in my editorial, not only has Anthony Albanese from the beginning of the debate been point blank refusing to provide the details, but he's been demonizing people who ask for details as somehow racist. Surely, Anthony, if the voice was as good an idea as the Yes campaign insists it is, is they'd be falling over themselves to provide us with detail, wouldn't they? Absolutely, and also they would take up the invitation to have open conversations, debate with the no people. So we learned a little while ago, Jacinta put the invitation to Linda Burney for a debate discussion and Linda declined saying something like, um, it's about the people, not politics, <laughs> uh, whatever that means. But I thought, well... That's a bit kind of rich, perhaps I shouldn't use that word rich, <laughs> a bit cheeky of her to say that when she's a paid politician and this is, you know, her her baby, this whole voice thing, she should be, and she has been travelling the country talking about it, so why not talk about it with a, an opponent, especially a worthy opponent like Jacinta? Well, yes, yeah. exactly. You know, if she thought that Jacinda's arguments sort of had no merit at all, then surely Linda Burney would be adhering by that old adage, sunlight is the best disinfectant and uh, unable to wait to debate people. But, you know, instead, as, as I showed in my editorial, she gets asked the simplest questions about the voice or treaty or whatever. She goes into a strange little word salad and reads from highlighted pages and it, mm. it's just an absolutely terrible look. Now... Speaking of Jacinta, 
People like yourself, Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price have forever uh, maintained. Happy birthday, Warren. Happy birthday, Warren Mundine. Oh, happy birthday to the lovely Warren Mundine. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I think he's uh, 96 or 97. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'd appreciate you saying that, Anthony Dillon. But let's, let's delete that bit out. Yes, we'll get it. <laughs> Happy birthday, Anthony Dillon. Now, people like yourself and like Jacinta Price and like Warren Mundine have maintained forever that the real way to close the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians is by adopting a ground-up approach to find real solutions to issues in vulnerable remote communities and that this top-down approach that encompasses the voice mm. has failed time and time again. Now, Anthony, Regarding Indigenous issues, do you think people adopt this more ideological approach over a practical, pragmatic one, simply do that because it's a leftist's easy way out? Yeah, the key word there was easy, mm. okay? And we know that you know, it's human nature to often take the path of least resistance. And we know that the mayor in Alice Springs was saying, you know, with regard to the problems up there, he said, we need to have tough conversations. And people steer away from tough conversations. and uh, so, yeah, quite obviously it does seem to be that people want this nice, rosy, easy approach, especially one that's sort of romanticised with language of self-determination and mm. people taking control of their own affairs, et cetera, et cetera, which is just nonsense. We know that it's got to be, well, you know, to close the gap, it's like Warren keeps saying, economic participation, schooling, all that sort of thing. And here's the, the real clincher, I, I think, when we look at the, I've said this before, when we look at the Indigenous architects of The Voice, uh, and we, we all know who they are, I have a lot of respect for every one of them. Mm. I disagree with every one of them, but I have a lot of respect because they are high achievers. They have achieved because they've got an education, they've um, taken opportunities when given to them, and they've done it all without The Voice. So they should be using their voices to say, hey, to those disadvantaged Aboriginal Australians, what you've got to do is what I've done. You know, mm, yes. Get into the job market, get an education, that sort of thing. Well, yes, exactly. I, I mean, this is where it frustrates me that capitalism gets demonised um, in our culture so much because capitalism has uh, delivered the most wonderful improvement in living standards to countries that have adopted it over the past hundred or so years. And that comes from people of all races, religions and creeds participating, as you say, in the job market and benefiting. And I, I feel that Indigenous Australians, because of this cultural relativism that has come from government after the government, the ones in remote communities, have been denied the opportunity to benefit from living in a Western capitalist democracy because anyone who's, who suggests they do so is, is worried about being called racist. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And look, um or, you know, we're, we're genocide, we're stripping them of their culture and, you know, all that sort of nonsense. And Stan Grant said it better than anyone else about eight years ago. Mm. And eight years ago, he seemed to be a different sort of Stan back then. <laughs> uh, by the way, if it's Stan, if you're watching, I still think you're a great person. Mm -hmm. But eight years ago, he was talking about how he's he was raised on a mission. His father moved the family around to where they could, where he could get work. Mm. Okay. So he moved, the father moved the family to where they could get work. And Stan said his culture, his connection to country is still as strong today as what it was when he was a boy. So we're not about, when we talk about jobs and education, 
you'll always get some idiot come in saying, oh, assimilation and genocide or whatever. No, we're just saying this is the way in the, in the 21st century to healthy living. Mm. You've got to get into the, uh, you know, the market of jobs and education and that does not mean stripping you of your culture and you can define culture any way you want. And, and, you know, Jacinta's mum is a great example of that, okay? Very strong cultural woman, best price, mm. but works. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, 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 think, I think it is a profoundly evident of the bigotry of low expectations to suggest that Indigenous people can't participate, you know, these remote communities in a capitalistic economy whilst also maintaining their cultural heritage. Of course, both can be done. You know, people who've been of different cultures living in other countries have been doing that since time immemorial. I think it is totally racist to suggest that somehow they're unable to do so because they're Indigenous. It, it, yeah. It's ridiculous and it's very, very frustrating. Now, what I've, I've noticed, Anthony, um, in your lovely commentary this evening, you've been so respectful of the people that you disagree with. You've yeah. mentioned Stan Grant and said, I still like you. And you've said the people, the architects of The Voice, you disagree with them, but you respect them. You, you wrote an article in The Australian recently talking about this very issue and saying that currently the leaders of each camp, rather than having a respectful debate, are demonising themselves as badly as people do on social yeah. media, this really lowers the quality of debate, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying that they're doing it every time, but I think they're, do they're doing it enough where people are noticing. I've noticed and I've heard people, you know, they've made comments to me where it seems to be some of the leaders on each side are, are more concerned about playing to their audience than they are about the issue. You know, they're more concerned about scoring points with the with their audiences when it should be about the topic, you know, the voice and its relationship to the well-being of Aboriginal people. Mm. Um, you know, otherwise it's it, it just drags the whole thing down. And a message for the the no people, the no camp out there specifically, is, you know, some of the things you say might be correct, but what we've got to be focused on, those people those people who are on the fence. We don't want to be preaching to the converted. And what we say often makes sense to the converted, but it may not make sense to the, the sense fitters, the fence sitters, or the people in the yes camp. So our messages have got to be those very basic ones I spoke about earlier. Um, Aboriginal people have a voice. Uh, the voice, we have not been told how it's going to help Aboriginal people. So keeping those basic arguments at the foreground, I think will be the ones to persuade the fence sitters. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes absolute yeah. sense. And this is the problem, isn't it, with mm. any kind of activism. It's very tempting to preach to the converted be mm. because it's fun. And you know mm. you're going to get affirmed and people mm. will laugh at your jokes and all of that. But ultimately, the point of any activism I think should be to change hearts and minds. So if we're yeah. putting out messaging that is simply, well, as you say, demonising the opposition, well, that's mm. not going to entice anyone mm. to, 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 to join our cause, is it? Uh, absolutely not. Yes. Um, now, look, Anthony, it, it's been seen time and time again that the majority of Indigenous Australians that live in remote communities are far more concerned with the immediate issues they face on the ground, for example, housing, domestic violence, alcoholism, crime, drug use, etc. 
so much more than they are with this senseless additional body in the Constitution. <clears throat> is it then fair to say that the voice is simply a vehicle being pushed by elites, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous? Yeah, absolutely. Um, unless they can, you know, again, come back to what we were saying before, unless they can map out a plan for how, how it's going to help those people, it would certainly appear to be like you're saying. And, you know, I think for some of these uh, voice advocates and architects, they're wanting it to be their, their legacy, their Martin Luther King moment, that sort of thing. You know, the best legacy you can leave is something that makes a practical difference in the lives of the most disadvantaged Aboriginal people, not something that just tickles the ears of the most advantaged Aboriginal people, but something that makes a practical difference in the lives of the most disadvantaged Aboriginal people. And as I keep saying, that's the gap we've got to close, the gap between the disadvantaged Aboriginal people and the advantaged Aboriginal people, such as myself and the architects of The Voice, we've got to close that gap. So do you think it's possibly fair to say that The Voice is a little bit of a vanity project for certain people? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, again, it's that Martin Luther King moment. And um, I mean, for goodness sake, when you get something like um, on the morning after Albanese's um, victory, mm. we had, you know, I saw stories about Aboriginal women crying because he spoke about the <laughs> voice. And, you know, those tears of joy will turn into tears of sadness if this voice gets up. So, yes, it is a vanity, legacy type thing for these people. Uh, it's, it's nice and easy. It ticks a box. It tickles the ears of people. It leaves you with those fuzzy-wuzzy feelings. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's a bit like the apology, the Kevin Rudd's apology years ago, which is not exactly the same, but... Um, and I said, you know, I don't oppose it, but it's not going to help people in any practical way. Sure, there was lots of emotions and crying and hugs and that sort of thing, but it didn't help anyone in any practical way. Yes, exactly. This is the problem, isn't it, between, you know, symbolism and actually helping people who are disadvantaged. And Anthony, you have, you have the most wonderful voice on this voice, <laughs> honestly, but many prominent Indigenous supporters of the no vote, including yourself, are constantly shouted down by non-Indigenous Australian leftists who claim to know what's best for Aboriginal communities better than people like you do. Yeah. If these leftist elites and activists are so concerned with incorporating Indigenous Australians into our national conversation, why do they only give a platform to Indigenous Australians who agree with them? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, wh why do they only give a platform to those who, that are already doing pretty well? Okay? Mm. Go spend a month in a remote community okay? and listen to their voices. Okay? Yeah, walk the streets and uh, in the suburbs and speak to those like myself who disagree and I will sit down civilly uh, and have a d debate. So yeah, you don't just want your own uh, echo chamber there. No, but again, it's, it's as we were saying, you know, if, if they actually thought this was a good idea, they'd be chomping at the bit to debate and to discuss. But ooh, no, yeah. no, 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 no. The reluctance is very revealing. Now, Anthony, lastly, you will be up in Brisbane, my hometown, on the 26th to do an event with Pauline Hanson and Warren Mundine. Tell us what we can look forward to. And I should mention this event is being streamed exclusively on ADH-TV. Um, I should say, Daisy, my hometown. Oh, yes, of course, yes. your hometown as okay. well. Um, so it's on the Gold Coast, um, which so, you know, near my hometown of Brisbane. Mm. 
but for what it's worth, my Aboriginal ancestry is from the Gold Coast, so I will be on, you know, country sort of thing. Uh, look, you look forward to hearing a, a diverse group of people. And so, you know, Warren, Dave Pellow, Pauline, Gary Johns, myself, we're all pretty much in agreement, but we have differences and we you know, of opinions on some things. And so, you know, much like a the different aspects on a diamond, we'll be bringing different aspects to this uh, discussion. Uh, and, you know, again, hopefully, not just to preach to the converted there, although, you know, there's going to be a lot of converted there, <laughs> but we're really hoping that for those who had been hardcore yes people, those that are sitting on the fence, uh, that you come along with an open mind and and listen. And, you know, if you still disagree at the end, that's fine. We're not there to tell you what to do. We're just there to make some offering and you can then decide for yourself mm. what you do with it. It sounds like a phenomenal event. I'm sure it will go absolutely swimmingly. Anthony Dillon, you are, as always, terrific. It was a privilege and a pleasure to have you on the show this evening. Always a pleasure to be with you, Daisy. Thank you. Well, as the saying goes, go woke, go broke. And super woke retail giant Target is realising that the hard way in the wake of their Pride Month display back in June, which featured tuck-friendly swimwear for women, as well as Pride slogans on clothing for children and even babies. An investor named Brian Craig is suing Target over the Pride Month display, saying that it misled investors over risks related to its LGBT marketing and diversity, equity and inclusion policies. The vice president of America First Legal, which is the law firm handling the case, Gene Hamilton, stated Target's board and management failed to follow federal law, which makes publicly traded companies issue particular statements to investors on risk management. As alleged in our complaint, Target failed to execute its duty to its shareholders by making statements that led them to believe that political and social risks were being assessed, when in reality, the only thing Target's board and management cared about was how effectively they fulfilled the desires of various metrics advanced by left-wing stakeholders, Hamilton said. Since that fateful display in June, Target has lost $14 billion worth of its market value. No wonder investors like Brian Craig are ticked off. However, the woke ESG diversity and inclusion virus is so firmly entrenched in the corporate world, it is hard to see a way out. And of course, this woke ESG big corpo mania extends to the big banks. Now this should frighten you for the simple reason that banks control your money and have the ability to close accounts at their discretion. And there is nothing to stop them from doing so in the name of politics. Just ask former UKIP leader and chief Brexiteer Nigel Farage, who recently was hit in the proverbial wallet by his longtime bank Coots. The bank unceremoniously closed his account simply because they felt Farage did not align with their supposed values, citing his friendship with Donald Trump as a problem and labelling Farage xenophobic and racist. As Farage himself said, 
The establishment are trying to force me out of the UK by closing my bank accounts. I have been given no explanation or recourse as to why this is happening to me. This is serious political persecution at the very highest level of our system. If they can do it to me, they can do it to you too. However, one of the most alarming things about this issue is that when Farage approached other banks to open an account, it was, sadly, no dice. I thought, well, there we are. I'll have to go and find a different bank. I've been to six, uh, no, seven banks, actually. Um, asked them all, could I have a personal and a business account? And the answer has been no in every single case. There is nothing irregular or unusual about what I do. The payments that go in and come out every month are pretty much the same. Oops, sorry, guys. There's a bit of text here. Here we go. Okay, to continue. Fortunately, Coots back down after a public outcry, but the rest of us don't have that luxury. This is doubly worrying when you consider how quickly we are marching towards a cashless society. For example, Australia currently has 6,400 ATMs in total. That's down from 31,000 eight years ago. Not only that, ANZ and NAB, two of the big four banks, have both announced they are no longer permitting cash withdrawals over the counter at some of their outlets. This comes on the heels of a June survey by the Australian Banking Association and Accenture, which found 98.9% of all transactions were now taking place digitally, with huge growth in mobile wallets on smartphones. Now, the increasing trend towards being cashless, which was greatly exacerbated by the pandemic for obvious reasons, might seem innocuous. Heck, it might even seem convenient. But it is an absolute gift, not only to big banks, but also big government. The more access governments have to the ins and outs of people's spending habits, and the more control over the value of currency, the less accountable they are to the voters. Why is this? Well, the more the government can fund itself via debt and printing money, the less reliant it is on your tax dollars, which means politicians have less incentive to live up to their promises. This is why governments hate cryptocurrencies, which are totally decentralized and provide taxpayers with some level of financial independence from government. So, could a mass movement to cryptocurrency be the one true way to hold big government's feet to the fire? Now look, I'm sure the concept of mysterious cryptocurrencies is new to a lot of you. Certainly it's quite new to me. So joining me to see if we can unravel that mystery and more is the Institute of Public Affairs' magnificent Daniel Wilde. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. Are you doing well? I'm going great, Daisy. Nice to be with you. Well, lovely to be with you as well. Now, look, first off, let's address the big elephant in the room here. The legendary Nigel Farage, as I mentioned, has recently had his UK bank accounts closed without proper justification other than a puny statement detailing that his daringly contrarian views don't align with those of his commercial bank. Daniel, 
Far be it for me to call for more government in anything, but do you think at this point Western governments should step in to enforce some sort of political impartiality within the corporate sector? Well, we've got a huge issue here, Daisy, as you've established, where Nigel Farage has been targeted not because of any financial issue or any accusations of uh, wrong undertakings on his behalf, but simply because of his political views. And he's uh, an existential threat to the establishment, as he did uh, demonstrate with Brexit. And uh, they've been after him ever since then. And this is uh, not only an attack on Nigel Farage, but it's a message being sent to anybody that dares to stick their neck out and challenge the political, uh, politically correct orthodoxies um, of the financial media and political um, establishment. And the question here is, well, where does it end? As the IPA's John Roscombe wrote recently in the Australian Financial Review, um, what if a bank... Uh, for example, or what if an electricity company, for example, says, well, we're not going to provide power to your house because you've written online that you're sceptical about climate change, for example. Uh, we've already got banks in Australia that are saying they're not going to lend money to mining projects or to farming projects because of the asserted impact they have on the environment and on climate. Um, and so this is a real concern because the financial sector should be aimed at generating a commercial return, uh, but now they're focused on generating a political return. And as you've rightly identified, this is leading calls among many in, in our society and others around the West uh, for governments to be involved in what banks can and cannot do. Now, there's lots of risks associated with that, but you can clearly understand why people are concerned. And as you've rightly established, uh, if they can come after Nigel Farage, who has the capacity to fight back and is, uh, but most people do not, and they will certainly come after mainstream Australians once they've knocked off uh, the leaders. Well, yes, exactly. And what I find sort of doubly frightening about the Nigel Farage issues is that, as he mentioned, he approached six or seven other banks and they all said no to him in terms of opening another account. Now, I think this proves that it's not just Coots Bank that has been trapped by this pro-establishment ESG-focused ideology. It's across all the banks, I'd imagine. Don't you agree? Look, it certainly seems that way. And look, I don't know the details of Nigel Farage's application to these banks, but I'll take what he said on face value and having been rejected by them. And look, this is a, a really big issue because... The intent of this, and if not the intent, but certainly the effect of it, is to have a chilling effect on our society where people on the street will see what's happening to Nigel Farage. They're making an example out of him. He's being denied access to what is a basic service. If you don't have access to a financial account and a banking account, then it's very difficult for you to function and operate in our society. And that's exactly the point of um, what they're doing. Um, I think that a lot of this, uh, though, is going to end up uh, hurting the banks and hurting the financial institutions because most people don't want to see this happen. Um, even if you disagree with Nigel Farage and even if you voted in the UK context um, against Brexit, most people, and the polls show this, don't want banks to be making decisions based on politics because they know where this can go. And, yes, it's true that today... Maybe they'll target people on the right, but what about tomorrow? There's nothing to stop the banks doing 
the opposite and targeting other people based on their political beliefs. This is a road that we definitely do not want to go down as a society and it's important that the banks are brought to heel. They already suffer from uh, very negative public perceptions uh, and this is not helping. Well, yes, exactly. Uh, nobody likes the banks at the best of times, uh, let alone when they are discriminating against people because of their political views. Um, and this brings me to my next point. I'm quite interested in the idea of cryptocurrency being sort of the next great populist revolution. I mean, banks hate cryptocurrencies for obvious reasons, um, and so do governments. I mean, the emergence of these cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology across the world clearly has governments worried because there's nothing more unsettling from a politician for a politician than a decentralized currency that they can't issue because this means they can't control it and also they become more accountable to their electorates. Now, Daniel, Considering that without modern fiat currencies, the government must rely on taxes to fund their various boondoggles rather than debt and printing money, does a decentralized currency like crypto have the power to reignite democracy across the Western world? Well, it's certainly an interesting emerging technology and topic of debate. And this really is a response to declining trust in our established institutions. We've just talked about the banks and what they're doing by becoming more political. Um, that's the case of pretty much all of the big corporations taking views on social positions like the voice to parliament uh, and relentlessly pushing that onto the Australian population. So there's declining trust in the established institutions of our society and it's not surprising that people are looking for alternatives. I mean, all you have to do is look at what's happening right in front of us now. You've got the government with their misinformation and disinformation bill, actively looking to weaponise the big tech companies um, to shut down freedom of speech um, in our nation. We've just discussed the banks and the energy companies and the big corporates. So this is really a search by many people in our society in response to declining, declining trust. And you've also got this massive issue, which is the inflationary pressures that we're facing as a result of massive government spending. And this is one of the challenges with fiat currency is we've got almost a trillion dollars in debt at the national level alone. We had all of that, I mean, out of everything that happened in COVID and all the problems with COVID, one of the great legacies that will come from that is the spending, which is a key part of the inflationary pressures that we're facing. So you've got a lot of people in our society that are developing a sense that something isn't working, that they're losing trust. And they're certainly searching for alternatives. Now, whether crypto will provide that alternative remains to be seen, but I see this as a symptom of a much deeper problem and challenge that we have in our societies. Mm, def uh, definitely, I absolutely agree. And speaking of which, let's, let's touch on this rapid transition in banking that's occurring in Australia uh, that for the most part is going relatively unnoticed by the majority of people. Daniel, Australia's commercial banks are shutting their branches across this country in droves in this relentless pursuit of a switch to online banking. Do you think there is an explicit agenda here in place to eliminate cash entirely from our economy? Are big banks and big government somehow in cahoots on this? Well, there's certainly be a move, there's been a move in this direction for some time, as you rightly established in your editorial uh, a part of this is just convenience, so we know a lot of people prefer using digital than using cash, and that's understandable. 
But there's a lot of uh, challenges and a lot to be concerned about. There's a privacy issue here, which is that the more of our lives that are digital and the more of our lives that take place online, the less control we have over that. There's also the data retention issue. Uh, who has this data and what are the legal frameworks about that? Are they able to share it or sell it um, to other companies or transact between government? Uh, and then there's also, of course, the tax issue. Um, as we all know, the tradee that asks for his, his or her payment to be in cash um, is perhaps doing so because there's certain tax advantages associated with that and, you know, that's up to them what they want to do. But, of course, governments want to make sure that as, mu- as many of these tra- transactions are digital and online so they can track them and extract more tax from an already overtaxed population. So there's lots of moves and pressures um, in this direction and I think there will come a, a potential tipping point where we go too far. Whether we're at that point or not, I don't know. But certainly the privacy angle to this um, is concerning. And it's also, look, um, if, you're, if you've got your own shop, yes, you're free to decide how people will pay you. I, you know, I think that's a, a basic principle of private property. But I'm uncomfortable with shops or supermarkets that basically don't allow you to pay by cash. I think that should always be an option for people who don't want to sort of get enmeshed in this uh, ever-increasing digital world of ours. Well, yes, exactly. And I really worry about our generation and Generation Z. We're both millennials, you know, then there are people obviously younger than us who are the, the Zoomers, so they're called we've really sort of grown, well, not necessarily grown up, but our adulthood has been largely cashless. You know, I, I a lot of us don't even really remember a time when cash was it was any kind of main means of, of making transactions. And for us, it's sort of, it's convenient. You know, we online shop, we do all, all of that. Whereas the baby boomers and above, I'm sure are much more suspicious of this cashless transition. It's almost like these younger generations are handing the government and the banks this advantage because we just simply lack the knowledge of the consequences or even an alternative. Yeah, look, I think that's right, Daisy. And in addition, in addition to that, there's a lot of young people that you know, have basically spent their whole lives on social media uh, in the online world and, uh, you know, in part as a result of their parents and so forth. And um, I agree, not only is it that they've not known a world of uh, having cash, but perhaps they've not known a world of having privacy. Mm. And that's, a, a, I think, more broadly a real, a real challenging thing. I mean, fortunately, when I was growing up and when you were growing up, there was uh, the development of the internet and the online world, but we still could go about our lives in a fairly private manner. But today you know, basically everything that you do, if you put it on, and I don't think young people have an understanding that when you put something online, it's basically online forever. And um, when you're young, you don't really have the capacity to think about that in the future. So I I feel sorry for younger people that really haven't been able to escape the digital vortex and are sort of stuck in there. And this sort of cash cashless element is, you know, I think, one facet of a much broader societal challenge that we're facing. Yes, and I think we will see as the years progress just what that challenge is going to turn into, and I don't think it will be pretty uh, for some reason. Now, look, Daniel, 
I have to ask you about, about Target. I mentioned this in my editorial. They went woke in June. They lost $14 billion. And now they're getting sued by an investor for being misleading with their warnings or lack thereof about these ESG policies. Elon Musk actually mentioned this in a tweet at the time. He said, surely Target is going to get sued. Surely Target's going to get sued at some point because of this. And he was right. This is what big work corporations don't consider, isn't it? They do have an obligation to their shareholders. Maybe, do you think we'll see more lawsuits like this in the future as corporations progressively woke themselves down the toilet? Uh, yeah, look, I think there'll be certain actions that are taken. And we, look, we're seeing that with the voice to parliament in Australia, where you've had uh, all of these companies basically sign up to the Uluru Statement from the Heart in its entirety. I'm not sure they know what it is. I mean, mm. how, how, could I, how could a company in all consciousness sign up to a document that commits to a treaty, mm. uh, which is basically a second constitution? Now, if we have a treaty, uh, that will essentially nullify everything that's happened before the treaty. Uh, including the original constitution of our nation. So the point of a treaty is to have a second constitution that would change company law, for example. It would change the corporation's arrangements. It's far-reaching. Mm. Now, how can a, a company director sign up to that without understanding the full um, implications to their company? I mean, putting aside all the other issues for our nation, just in terms of their company, how can they do that without having had proper advice on it? So I think you're right that there will be maybe there'll be lawsuits, but if there's not lawsuits, there's going to continue to be pushback. We've seen a lot of pushback from consumers uh, where we've had some of those big companies where they're pumping those messages out rather than playing, you know, easygoing 70s rock music to keep you in the store. <laughs> uh, they're pumping these politically correct messages out to, to customers and we've had pushback against that because, you know, people are sick of it uh, on the voice to parliament. I think a lot of shareholders are starting to look at this and say, well, okay, if you want to take a position on a social issue, do that in your private capacity. If you want to make a donation to a campaign, do it in your private capacity, but that shouldn't be the business of a, of a public company. And don't forget, we've got a cost of living crisis at the moment. Uh, places like Bunnings and Woolworths and other big companies, they're not exactly popular at the moment because mm. the price of everything is going up and people are saying, well, hang on, if you've got a few million bucks to throw at a campaign, how about you reinvest that and get prices down uh, rather than dividing us uh, with political issues? Well, yes, exactly. And look, as I mentioned in my editorial at the top of the show, um, the polls for the voice to parliament are not looking good for the yes camp. Have a lot of these companies possibly shot themselves in the foot with this sort of premature support of the voice? Look, they may have. Uh, there's a long way to go on the campaign and we know the Yes campaign has 40 or 50 million bucks to spend still. So, <laughs> um, you know, eventually they'll land on a good message and they'll put money behind it. So I think that uh, I would warn against any kind of complacency on those who are on, on the no side of the equation because there's a long way to go on the campaign. But clearly Australians have had a gut full of companies and sporting codes weighing in on this and many other issues. Uh, I mean, we just put a poll out today, for example, on the back of the Port Adelaide Football Club in the AFL backing in the voice to parliament saying 65% of, of Australians don't want uh, footy clubs to be getting involved in the voice to parliament. Wow. And that included almost half of yes voters. Oh. You know, that's what's significant. So 
Yeah, so even if you're on the yes side of the equation, they're saying, look, just stay out of it. Um, so this is actually widespread across the community that those uh, people going to, this, uh, going to sport, uh, people that are shopping or whatever else it might be, they want these uh, big companies and big corporates to stick to their knitting and stay out of these <laughs> kind of issues. Again, if you're a, if you're a private citizen, go for it. Yeah. Um, you're, you're absolutely entitled to do it. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that the celebrities and the big corporates weighing in um, is not helping the yes case. Daniel Wilde, well said. You are wonderful as always. Thank you so much for coming on the show this evening. Thanks, Daisy. Nice to be with you. Well, that's all we've got time for tonight on the Daisy Cousins Show. Thank you all so much for joining me. As always, it has been a delight. Please join me next week and every week for more of my take on the absolute state of reality as we know it. Good night, world. I'll see you very soon.